Sherlock Holmes, English-speaking vernacular. Help save Fu Manchu, Moriarty and Dracula. Surfing the old ways from being abused. Protecting the new ways for me and for you. Hello, and welcome to A Study in Granada, a podcast where I, Mike Knoll, a fan of Sherlock Holmes stories, and particularly the 1980s Granada series starring Jeremy Brett, have roped my friend and neophyte Holmesian, Jackson Eflin, into going on this adventure with me. Jackson, hello. Hello. If you're a if you're the Sherlock Holmes, I'm like the Sherlock Vagabond, the Sherlock Couch Surfer, perhaps? Yeah, I suppose that is one way of phrasing it. The Sherlock traveling magician to entertain the troops, perhaps. Very uh, topical to this episode. Yeah. Uh, this week, Jackson and I are, I was about to say tackling the crooked man. Oh, that wouldn't but... be good. <laughs> no, uh, we are watching the episode and reading the story, The Adventure of the Crooked Man. And as alluded to, uh, this episode features the military, spe- specifically the military of the late 1800s, early 1900s England, which the military men who are or were engaged in the occupation of India, and that was a really shitty time period, and, that, and the episode doesn't really do a lot to unpack that, but I mean, it, it's based on a story written at a time when, when that was just all fine, so yeah, I'm not gonna like, do a 15 minute digression into the horrors of the British Raj, because that would, you know, be unfun and nobody would enjoy that and only a hack would make you sit through that in, in commonplace media but uh that is a thing so yeah uh yeah and that's relevant in this one because we are brought into a i guess the murder of a military commander and part of the reason and, and it has to do with watson's military service a little bit like he's in the episode it seems like it's much more to do with much like in the Naval Treaty, he's brought in because of his ties with the Army and with his friend Sherlock Holmes. Watson served in the British Medical Corps in Afghanistan, but was discharged following an injury. He was wounded in an limb. It changes between a couple of the stories. He was wounded by, quote, a Giselle bullet. The Giselle was a simple, cost-efficient, and often handmade muzzle-loading long arm commonly used in British India, Central Asia, and parts of the Middle East in the past. He was struck with a fever and invalided out of the army with half pay officer pension of 11 shillings and six pence a month. So uh, before we get into the this, this synopsis, Jackson, because the one I found is pretty quick and clean. So I think we might do the full synopsis and then just kind of meander our way through our topics. Yeah, sounds good. Um, what did you think of this one? Episode and like splitting the episode and story separately. It was maybe my least favorite of the ones we've done so far. Um, okay. we'll get, get into it more, but the episode structure is a little bit eh, and as far as like, it's not a, it's not a bad story per se, but as far as like Sherlock Holmes story, it's not really what I come for. Um, mm-hmm. and it starts off pretty well, but then it kind of breaks down a bit. So yeah, I think if I watched it again, knowing where it was going, I might be more into it, but I was underwhelmed. I think I can see that as like an adult. I remember, I, I always kind of like this one. Mm-hmm myself because i remember being like 10 and it's like a lot of people who used to watch the classic doctor who with the hokey like you know latex monsters but that when they were kids they were like hiding behind the couch sure i remember the crooked man in this one like i was like oh kind of like not behind the couch hiding but like maybe like a pillow just because he was spooky yeah. and every time they show him generally there's like lightning flashes in the background and stuff so like 
I don't know. Like I, I, the episode as an adult, the episode's not as good as I remember, but I think mostly I just remember being a kid and being kind of like spooked by the crooked man. Yeah. I think there are definitely parts of this episode I really liked. We'll get into more, but yeah, I, I have mixed feelings. We'll, we'll get into more. Let's, uh, let's talk about what, the, what happened in the episode before we talk about what happened in the episode. Sure. Uh, this review is coming to us from the Arthur Conan Doyle Encyclopedia website. Following a violent conjugal argument, Colonel Barclay's lifeless body is found close to his unconscious wife, Nancy. She's suspected of murdering her husband. Major Murphy urges Holmes and Watson to investigate Barclay's death. He tells Holmes that Nancy Barclay, while she lived in India, was in love with Corporal Henry Wood, but when he was reported missing, she married Barclay, whose obsessional jealousy spoilt her life. Hmm... I'm not sure this person has as good a grasp of the English language. Yeah. At Barclay's house, Holmes hears that on the evening of the tragedy, Nancy came back from the mission deeply distressed. And according to the servant who found Barclay dead, his face expressed the utmost terror. The stick supposed to have killed the colonel has never been seen in the house before, and the key of the room where he met his death can't be found. Holmes therefore concludes that a third person was present. Soon he finds human prints and an animal's tracks. Then he goes with Watson to the mission, where Anne Morrison reports that, the fatal night, her friend Nancy has been terribly upset by her encounter with a severely deformed person, Henry Wood. Wood can be found at the regiment canteen, where he performs tricks with his mongoose. As soon as his act is over, Wood tells Holmes and Watson the dreadful story of his life, his regiment being surrounded by rebels. Wood volunteered for going to General Neal and asking him for help. His rival, Barclay, gave him deceptive directions which led him in the reb- into the rebels' hands. Cruelly treated for many years, Wood became horribly deformed. Back in England, he meets Nancy again at the mission, follows her, witnesses her quarrel with Barclay, and, in order to protect her, enters by the window. Struck by his horrifying appearance, the colonel dies of an apoplectic fit. The forensic pathologist's statement and Wood's testimony will undoubtedly clear Nancy of the murder charge. Also, there's not a lot that happens in this one, really. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to just kind of get that done, and then we could we could have a maybe fuller conversation here and there. For sure. As I kind of alluded to, about half an hour into this episode, Holmes tracks down Officer Wood, Sergeant Wood, whatever. The, Henry. Henry Wood, thank you, yeah. And then Henry like, tells him this whole backstory for, for about a third of the episode's runtime. And it's it's not a bad story, per se, but it is definitely kind of a, like... Uh, like, oh, we're veering away from that now. If you wanted a lot of homes in this one, you don't get that. The episode definitely suffers from being an adaptation of a very bland and boring story. This is from the, like, towards the end of his run, wasn't it? Yeah, so this is from the Memoirs of Sherlock Holmes, which was supposed to be the last volume. Uh, the last story of the Memoirs of Sherlock Holmes is the final problem. And I think much like the origin story for like Batman or Spider-Man, everyone knows that Sherlock Holmes like died in quotes. And, and we'll, I'll talk much more about this when we get to the final problem uh, next season. Oh, that's next season. Yeah, they do it. They get it done quick. Anyway, when we get to it, I'll cover it more, but basically this was meant to be the end of Sherlock Holmes uh, because Conan Doyle was starting to get tired of doing it. Like he wanted to do other things. He was like writing other stuff, but all anybody would ask him about was Sherlock Holmes. Right. Uh, you know, the problems of a successful writer. What's that like? So he meant to kill him off. And I think you, you can tell here in the Naval Treaty. Mm. It was just two stories before this of huge amount of exposition, very little footwork, a huge amount of exposition wrapping up the case. 
And I think that this episode, like the Naval Treaty, suffered because there wasn't much else to go on except huge swaths of explanation. They did a pretty good job of, with what they had. Like, the original story is kind of just, it's Holmes and Watson talking in Watson's apartment, then it's them talking to Henry Wood, and that's it. Whereas here, there's a lot more moving around, you, you see the places, and you get a lot of good flashbacks, so that works. Yeah. I think I liked what they changed was, in the story, Holmes is very excited about this case comes to Watson uh, to be a witness for Dr. Henry Wood, whereas in the episode, Watson's very excited about this case, and he's like, oh, you'll have a good time. Holmes, this will be fun. And Holmes is like, mm, will I? Will I, though? Yeah. <laughs> like, Watson is very excited about this case. I think it's, I think that it's, like, a back on a footing I know a lot about. Right. Dr. John Watson, formerly medical officer attached to the Royal Boxers, now in civilian practice. I was a military man, so I know a lot about military. It's good to be back, you know, on this base, whatever. And Holmes is just so uninterested. Mm -hmm. There's a bit where Holmes figures out there's a third person in the room for the supposed murder, and he goes, uh, there's a third person. He sounds so tired, he's like, oh. Then there must have been a third person. Exactly. I should now find a whole third person. There's all this complication that I don't care about. And he's only excited when he figures out there's, like, some wild beast he'd never seen before involved. I'm like, okay, cool, this is, this is something. Our intruder had a somewhat unusual companion. It's a dog, isn't it? Somebody's dog. Who ever heard of a dog running up a curtain? What about a cat, then? These paw marks are not those of a cat, not of a monkey, not of any creature that we are familiar with. I would think from hind foot to forefoot, at least 15 inches out of that, the length of neck and head. You have a creature of no less than two feet, more if there's a tail. The length of its stride is odd. It indicates a creature with a long back and short legs. Something like a stoat or a weasel? We also know that it is carnivorous. How can you tell that? Well, you see, what made it run up the curtain? The canary. Exactly. And what was this beast? Yeah, I, I don't know. For me, I think it reads, or watching the episode this time, I, I took it, as kind of an interesting angle, we've had Holmes come up against, you know, like servants not wanting to talk out of turn about their masters or, you know, government officials not wanting to talk out of turn about things going on in the government, like this very British turn of the century, like we got to keep this kind of sweeping this under the rug. And this is the first time that it's like every quarter that Holmes has to deal with is like, oh yeah, the servants don't want to speak out of turn about their, you know, their employers. The military is trying to kind of keep this hush-hush themselves. And like, it's basically also Holmes just fatigued under the just sheer amount of like, crap, now I got to make these people talk. Now I got to make these people talk. Now I got to make these people talk. Mm -hmm. Although the thing I like, he was super shitty and kind of, not, not super shitty, he was very dismissive of the younger servants in the Barclay house who was kind of she could tell and she's her the actress did a good job of like 
relating that she was not having this. She found her employer dead and her other employer near comatose. She's mm-hmm. not she's uh, she's not okay with being talked down to, and I really appreciate that they managed to like bring that through with her. Yeah, I, f- I feel like up until, as you point out, where Holmes starts to get like excited with the footprints and stuff, it feels very much like, oh, another locked room murder? Okay, I guess. Yeah. And then the footprints are like, ooh, this is new. Yeah, and this is our first, well, I'm going to say this is our first murder. It's not actually murder, we find out. So we, I have yet to be given a murder in five uh, episodes. The Dancing Men. Eh, that was kind of self-defense. That's, I mean, yeah. That's fair. He was killed. We were going to have like a, a good premeditated murder, like a like yeah. uh, a true murder, a, a proper British murder. Jackson's thirsty for that blood. A jolly good murder. <laughs> Top shelf murder. So I think we should touch on briefly Watson and Holmes as we do every week. Yeah. This had a really um, good Watson and Holmes moment at the end. Uh, yeah. The uh, where Holmes just the most circuitous way sets up a final little test for Watson <laughs> like after the whole adventure's over it's just like a fun little test that he set up so in the story uh, Mrs. Barclay is heard to shout David David twice and everyone's like who's David they didn't know anybody named David nobody here is named David you know the names are Henry and James and so forth someone's name is uh, Patrick or whatever and at the end Holmes like oh it's uh, a reference to David from the Bible and Holmes there's just one thing I don't understand if the colonel's name was James, and Wood was called either Henry or Harry, then who the deuce was David? Oh, my dear Watson, that name David should have told me the whole story. Had I been the ideal reasoner, which you are so fond of depicting, but alas, my parts of deduction failed me. You see, David, in this case, was evidently used as a term of reproach. Reproach? Don't you remember how King David sent Uriah the Hittite? into the forefront of the battle to die so that he might steal his woman, Bathsheba. I think you'll find the story in the first or second book of Samuel. My Old Testament is a little rusty. You're quite right, Holmes. Second book of Samuel, chapter 11, verses 14 to 17. You appear to have looked it up yourself. Since we returned home from Aldershot. How did you know? You used this bill for our meal at Waterloo as a bookmarker, did you not? Excellent, Watson. Elementary, my dear Holmes. So what do you think about this David twist slash reference? It gave us that really fun bit with Watson at the end, and it gave us some other fun bits with Watson where... um, So the name David comes up, and and Watson's going, but the husband's name is James, and the conversation keeps going a bit, and they've moved on from this now, and then... um, Watson's like, and the other man's first name was Patrick. But the colonel's name was James. Have you ever heard Mrs. Barclay refer to anyone called David? No, sir. I don't think she or the colonel knew anyone by the name of David. And Major Murphy's Christian name is Patrick. And it's like, she's like still on this. <laughs> I love that Watson has grasped onto this theory that th- she's having an affair. Because when they're talking to Major Murphy, uh, whose name is Patrick, he is telling them that one time he came back, like he went there for dinner and he came back cause he forgot his cigar case and saw them like arguing. And uh, Colonel Barclay was accusing her of having an affair. And so Watson just grabs that and is like, well, this is it. Here we go. It's an affair. <laughs> and like, I don't know, but yeah, I, I have a theory that Conan Doyle was thought, Hey, I have an idea. What if I take the story of David and this other guy, 
mm. and do that is like a mystery. But the other guy survived and came back yeah. and was just like, because I've done something like that before as a younger man. And even to this day, I'll have a moment of weakness and I'm like, I'll be damned if I don't work that reference in somehow. Oh, sure, sure. And I feel like Conan Doyle was just like, this was such a good idea. I want everybody to know, like, this is where that idea came from so that they're impressed with the idea. Right. I don't know what religion was like at this time period. I'm not sure if I believe someone, like, shouting this reference to the Bible at someone oh, as yeah. admonition. But I don't know. We don't know that much about Mrs. Barclay. We know she, like, did missionary work, so maybe she's into it. That's fair enough. One thing that I do appreciate about this episode, because Watson has his, like, but this guy's name is James. This guy's Christian name was Patrick. Um, he That's really useful for us, the viewer, who have probably not kept track of every single person's first name, because they're all being referred to as, like, you know, Major Grant, Major Wood, whatever, Colonel Featherston. Two more. General Hargreaves and Colonel Von Strom. These very English names. Yep, that's the full cast of this episode. Yeah. There's, there's no Holmes or Watson in it, actually. Anyway. It's a backdoor pilot. <laughs> God. It's useful for us to viewer because we've probably forgotten the name, so Watson reminding us of what them are, of what them are is very mm-hmm. helpful for you if you're trying to like keep track of the mystery and try, trying to solve it yourself at home. So I really appreciate that. I appreciate that addition, which was also still in keeping with Watson as a character. That was really cool. Yeah. I know that you wanted to talk about the structure of the story versus the episode. Yeah. So in the story, like I said, it's just Holmes has done all of the legwork already. He's just coming to Watson to like be a witness talking to Henry Wood. Here, mm-hmm. it starts with Watson bringing him in, and we kind of see all this legwork, and Watson's here for all of that, and it makes it way more interesting because you have more characters bouncing off of each other. You also have this really cool thing that the the filmmaker did where they had a lot of long takes, like some of them like a minute long, which is pretty impressive for something being filmed on film in the 80s. Like that's a, that is a commitment to your craft, and it shows some real work. It also shows off this beautiful mansion they had for the the Barclay Estate, which is apparently mm-hmm. like very low on light bulbs because there is like everything is dark there. Like no one is, everyone is well lit in that I can see them, but everybody keeps their lights as low as possible to still be readable on camera, and that's eerie. It's kind of slightly gothic. Yeah, I. Like I, I think this ties back in with what we were talking about earlier of just the amount of like Holmes shows up at Watson's house late one night and it's like, I need you to come with me tomorrow. And here is about 10 pages of exposition of what's of what I've done already in the case at large. And then the next day there's like a page of them going to meet Henry Wood and then about five pages of him wrapping up the mystery. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and like, that's it. That's the story. And by wrapping up the mystery, we mean telling you in exhaustive and specific detail about why he hates this guy as opposed to, oh, mm-hmm. here's a short paragraph on how that happened. And then here's a short paragraph of what happened after. It's like, oh no, well, you see my shoe size was six and a half. Well, I mean, there, we do get like a very lengthy paragraph describing a mongoose <laughs> when holmes is explaining about the print he found oh you can tell by the like the legs are very short and the back is very long and it's like this is a very long paragraph <laughs> of that having watched the episode first i told jackson almost just like you could skip a lot of the dialogue in the story because it's pretty much word for word i think i like about the story is you have this when holmes is doing the measurement he like whips out this uh, tape measure in and 
he's positioned in a way that no human would ever actually be positioned because Jeremy Brett is amazing. And oh yeah, it's like he's a grasshopper quivering about to jump while doing his measurements with the tape measure that he just carries around with him because, of course, he does. He's Sherlock Holmes. When they start following the footprints out onto the lawn, the way he walks <laughs> in the most exaggerated, like sideways, like crossing one leg over the other, but like both hands in the air. Like, honestly, if they put spooky piano, like the. Now I just want that cut. I love that you have this, like, very, like, exaggerated. Uh, uh, like, you were gesticulating and doing these, like, wonderful movements that no one will see because this is a podcast, but I appreciate your dedication because yeah. it made me smile. Yeah, I just imagine, like, the both arms in the air, like, hunched over with the hands, like, splayed out front. Like, I mean, Jeremy Brett's a tall person, but it's, it, it's like they, like, somehow added a foot to both his upper and lower leg bones. So that he's just, like, like, sort of, like, strange stilt man and um, made me very happy. The next week's episode is going to be the adventure of the strange stilt man. Yeah, didn't Punisher kill him at one point? This kind of leads me to a, a thing that I wanted to bring up, and I don't know if you've noticed it, but it's a thing that I always, I kind of always associate with this series, and it's I, it's like the Jeremy Brett smile, and it's yes. when somebody says something, or he gets a I don't know, but it's the corners of his mouth just strike straight out to the side and then right back in. Mm-hmm. It's like this the very fleetingest smile. And it's such a good I don't know, it's such a good characteristic and trait of just like he'll be listening to a thing and Watson will make a theory or something and it'll just be like this very quick smile. And usually it's like of approval. And that actually ties into the story too. He's talking about how excited he is about this case, and Watson says that his eyes kindled and a slight flush sprang to his thin cheeks. For an instant, the veil had lifted upon his keen, intense nature. Well, for an instant only. And, yeah, Jeremy Brett gets that. He gets that, like, very, like, barely contained energy of Sherlock Holmes uh, to solve mysteries. And I like that. And I just mean, but this this is smile. He does this smile across the series. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, it's it's just a Jeremy Brett thing. And it's what I always associate with him. You know, he just has the hands pressed together and then the tips up against his mouth. And then it'll just be, like, a quick like, flash of a smile. And then it's gone. And I don't know. I just, it's such a cool... Um, yeah. So, some parts of this episode's cinematography are pretty good. Not all of them. There's a bit where Holmes is talking to Mrs. Morrison, Miss Morrison, whatever, uh, mm-hmm. Nancy Barclay's friend, and she's like, I can't. I cannot betray a friend. Please don't ask me to. Um, but she's. But you must imagine her sitting at one end of a stone room, shouting this at Sherlock Holmes, and walking walking halfway across the room. <laughs> so, yeah, she comes in. So, like, it's this big stone room, and there's all these tables with, like, blankets and clothes and stuff. And where people milling about. The less fortunate will come in and, you know, take what they need. And she walks in this doorway and looks across this large stone room at Sherlock Holmes and Watson and just yells, A promise is a promise! <laughs> It's so good. But what I, I wrote this in my notes is that she's like Holmes is like she's might die, <laughs> and she's also like kind of under suspicion for killing her husband at this point. Like you could help us, and she goes like reluctantly, like all right, well, if it's like if those are the stakes, I think that I can I can tell you. And then like she says something, and they go to a cutscene, and they come back, and she is just like grinning, like gleefully <laughs> spilling this secret now. Like, the look on her face is just like, she's like gossiping at this point. Like, it's so funny that she starts off very reluctant, and when they cut back, she's like so giddy. Morrison's always want to start shit. Like, her granddaughter is definitely going to like lure a policeman to an island to sacrifice them to, her, to the pagan gods. I swear to God. 
The Adventure of the Wicker Man. Oh my god, I would read the fuck out of that. Miss Morrison is actually played by Fiona Shaw, who many people will know as uh, Aunt Petunia from the Harry Potter movies. Oh dang, you're right, she is. Oh, I didn't mention this last time, but the guy who was um, older guy from uh, last episode. Oh, uh, Carruthers? Yeah. Guy, guy who played Carruthers was also in the Tractate Midoff, which came out a few years ago, and it's really good, and everybody should watch that. The what? The Tractate Midoff. The Tractate Midoff? Yeah. Those are real huh. words that are in in British, but not English. Gotcha. Yeah. Anyway, moving on. Um, yeah, so yeah. I Oof. yeah, so so opportunity is screaming like I mustn't tell the secret. But also this secret <laughs> happened in a crowded room that everybody saw. Holmes could ask literally any of the beggars who were there, like, hey, did you see this this ninety degree angle spine man talking to this one lady? <laughs> and <laughs> Can I just say, it's probably a good thing that you weren't in charge of naming these uh, stories. Sherlock Holmes and the Adventure of the 90 Degree Spine Man. Um, this person is very, like, very noticeably bent over. I don't, I don't know if they had a, um, if they had a actor who actually had a spinal deformity or if you, or, or there's had someone hunched over. I don't, I don't know. I would guess it's the latter. Yeah. One thing I did notice, I did notice a decent number of uh, South Asian actors in the India sequences, okay. which I appreciated. I don't know for sure if all of them were, but I got the impression that they did manage to at least like not do a lot of brown face, so that's good. I, I, I can't speak for the entirety of the series. I don't think that there is really any of that. There is a mystery. I don't know. I, they might have done an episode for it. There's a story that I'm less familiar with called The Yellow Face, so I don't, but I don't know if that's more of like a sulfur, or you know what I mean, like yeah. like yellow as in like Asian in quotes, yeah. or yellow as in like this is weird that that a face shouldn't be that yellow, right? Yeah. So I can't speak for it, but when we get to that, we'll find out. Because I mean, these are about thirty years old, and they're based off of over a hundred year old stories. I assume there's going to be yeah. some not great. I thought you meant the stories for a minute was. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Arthur like, Conan Doyle, who was, uh, who was very active in the 80s. The, well, the 1880s. Well, yeah. Carly Rae Jepsen and, uh, <laughs> was uh, born the same year that Arthur Conan Doyle wrote the story. Yeah. Anyway, so that's... <laughs> <laughs> there are some not great descriptions here. Like, they describe this uh, deformed person as uh, an unusual-looking creature, more like a chimp than a human being, which are not great. Yeah. The, the whole, like fear of deformed people is there's a lot of complexity there and it's not always been a great thing mm -hmm. i don't have like a lot of nuance to bring to this conversation also if i if we're if either of us are talking about this badly let us know we're sorry yeah for sure yeah. i think that there's a thing in this in the summary they say that barclay died from like basically from terror at henry wood's like horrific countenance or whatever mm -hmm. and i think that it's much more of like because in the in the story and in the show, they reference that like, oftentimes he'd suddenly just like, stare off into the distance and be very pale, and the smile would be struck from his face as if by a ghostly hand or whatever. He's very superstitious. Yeah, and obviously it's that he's thinking about like how dirty he did Henry Wood, mm. and I think that honestly it's much more of the like that fear all at once welling up of like oh shit he's back and he's pissed. And that like you could read it as like. <clears throat> I think this is the ghost of Henry Wood here to like take his dues, or yeah. or this person is still alive. Oh God! Either way, not great yeah. for him. And so I think I'd say no. that's a better read. And to be fair, this guy yeah. does enter through a window carrying 
uh, mongoose while lightning is flashing behind him, which is a pretty intimidating way to enter, enter a and room. And just like scowling. Yeah. The makeup department was amazing mm-hmm. on this one with, with uh, Henry Wood. They make his face very weathered and uh, uh, scarred. And pitted. Pitted, yeah. I'm just going to look up that actor real fast just to see what he like looks like without that. There's a line in the story where Holmes kind of chides Watson for writing stories and the tales of Holmes as being meretricious, which means to to seem to have value as in like a learning exercise and not really having that like infotainment mm, in a way, yeah. but less info. And I like that a lot. I think that Holmes does this a few times throughout the stories, but the idea being that Holmes thinks that these should be like very factual guides of how you too can think like Sherlock Holmes. You too can see and observe and with three easy payments of 1995 and that Watson needs to make these very factual and that he kind of accuses Watson of going for shock and awe and entertainment more than learning. And I don't disagree because a lot of the Holmes, like you, you mentioned this in dancing men that you could solve that one yourself if you wanted to if you sat down with a pencil and paper and got to work you could decode the dancing men Mm -hmm. and i think that most of them aren't like that and it's because for entertainment like holmes says in there that like you often don't include things that you and i both learn in the adventure like basically it's like you're withholding information from the reader to make it an exciting tale and i think that's an important thing that kind of gets lost in the in translating the story to film you kind of lose that because with film, we see what's happening, so we kind of assume that that's reality for the most part. Like, very few people do that whole, like, Rashomon thing where they only present what the person experienced opposed to the truth. There's, like, a lot of literature about, like, the Kino eye and all that jazz. Whereas in the stories, because they are specifically called out as being Watson telling you a story about Sherlock Holmes, Sherlock is amplified to be more dramatic than he is. And it's kind of a really cool fact. I think that people often forget about the people don't consider when they're looking at stories of Watson as a slightly unreliable narrator. Uh, so there's there's a thing that I read a, a book a number of years ago called The Devil's Grin. Ooh. And it's about a, it, it's a woman who pretends to be a man so she can be a bacteriologist in 1880s London, whatever. And she ends up meeting Sherlock Holmes. And like they do this adventure together. And I think that like, She's meant to. I, th- I know that there's later books in the series that I'm pretty sure continue to tie in with Sherlock Holmes, and I don't care for her for her take on Holmes. He's much more like mean mm. and dismissive than normal. But the way that Windeberg gets around it that I it is an interesting thought is that you know it's like well don't you can't just trust the stories because Watson's his friend and of course he's going to kind of gloss over this or that or give him benefit of the doubt or like this is the homes that Watson experiences because they're best friends and they like live together arguably like that's not necessarily the Watson homes you're going to get over here and like while I disagree with her take on Holmes I thought that's an interesting point that we kind of get brought up here with Holmes saying stuff of like you're with you withhold stuff in your stories to make them more like a narrative and make me seem much more superhuman. Mm-hmm. And so the idea of we almost can't trust entirely the Holmes that we're reading about, but. And that actually looked in the episode too. Uh, he mentions, um, he's talking about the David thing and he's like, 
Holmes, there's just one thing I don't understand. If the Colonel's name was James, and Wood was called either Henry or Harry, then who the deuce was David? Ah, oh, my dear Watson, that name David should have told me the whole story. Had I been the ideal reasoner, which you are so fond of depicting, but alas, my parts of deduction failed me. I like that he's aware of and commenting on his persona, and how that persona is grander than reality. Uh, no, that's a very good point. Um, so anyway, I just I thought it was interesting that we have Holmes basically outright in the story saying, like, you can't necessarily trust Watson entirely. Mm-hmm. And that Watson kept that in the story. If I assumed more arc narrative to Doyle and to the show, I would assume that, that would be kind of that Watson as a character is is starting to come to terms with his faults in his old age or whatever. But I think it's mm-hmm. that's less of a, a a thing really. But yeah, the show doesn't really go for arcs yeah. other than like I think the the biggest arc I know of is like a two episode arc, and that's mostly just they reference Moriarty the episode before the final problem. Sure. Um, I'm not gonna lie. I, for a brief second in *A Scandal in Bohemia*, I thought they were gonna do a thing where, like, when Irina Adler Irena. talks about how someone advised her Sherlock Holmes might come for her eventually, I thought they're gonna be like, uh, "Not sure, that's be Moriarty who advised her." That would have been a cool, like, forward-thinking thing, but probably for the best. We don't need Moriarty as like the er villain of every Sherlock Holmes thing, but I can see how you could do that for that particular case. I feel like they should almost should have done a like Russell T Davies era Doctor Who thing with it, where just like every so often you hear his name or something, where like uh, vote Saxon yeah for the the Martha Jones season, but like in the world because I a thing that I feel like too many writers have kind of leaned on too heavily is having Moriarty be behind it the whole time. Mm-hmm. Like behind everything. I mean, he's the Napoleon of crime, the spider at the center of the web, but like that doesn't necessarily mean he's actively pursuing Holmes. I think it's much more he's over here and Holmes is like plucking strings in the web as he's solving his crimes. It's not like a, I'm playing a game with Sherlock Holmes for, you know, 80 episodes. It's just kind of, they run in the same circles. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, cause you set up basically with no preamble or introduced to the greatest criminal, like mastermind there has ever been. And then he's gone. <laughs> yep. So as you can tell from us kind of like veering wildly off topic this episode, there's not a lot here to dig into. It's not it's not really a bad episode. The actors aren't like doing a bad job or anything, but there's not a lot of me if you're interested in the like Sherlock Holmes mythos thing. This is a story that has been adapted a few times. Um, like this is kind of one of the more like big dramatic do it as its own thing kind of stories as opposed to say. The Dancing Men, which is, it feels more like an episode. Yeah, I think that the writers of the show decided to focus in on what they had a lot of, which was the backstory stuff, and went for more of like a love story kind of angle. Because there's a lot of like very sunny, like musically backed like shots of young Barclay, young Wood, and young Nancy in India in these very like picturesque settings and like cl- like holding each other and like laughing and running and I don't know it feels like they were angled for like well we got to fill 50 minutes so I guess we can like try to do like more of a love story mm-hmm. slash revenge story I'm very glad that uh they put a lot of effort into making sure that young Murphy young Wood and young Barclay looked exactly like their older versions and also did a lot of work making sure yes. that all of those men look different in their young forms because 
I could definitely tell who is who in every scene. That's a note I made of like, this is one of those few times where the younger version of an older character actually kind of looks like they could be a younger version of that character. Oh, I was kidding. But, uh, yeah. I thought, especially Barclay, young Barclay yeah, looked. They have the same mustache. Decently, like, well, he didn't have a mustache as a young man. Well, I got nothing then. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. We're probably going to do this more over time, but I'm not good at faces. It's not like Jessica Jones, where for the flashback episode, they just went back in time and got young Kristen Ritter to be in that episode with a time machine that brought her back to her point in timeline and erased her memory. Yeah. yeah. Look it up. Yeah. It's, the truth is out there. So we have one more piece of business before we move on to short and varied thoughts, and that is Must Clash. Oh, yes. I think the only person in this who has a fighting chance is Major Murphy. And Major Murphy's Christian name is Patrick who has a very thick and lustrous mustache. The major that they meet at the beginning that they speak with, Holmes and Watson. Yeah. I think his mustache is good, but it's not King of Bohemia good. No, I agree 100%. It's kind of it's kind of sad that the King of Bohemia was the first person we met, because I, I feel like he's kind of... He's going to just take that top spot. He's. I think next season, assuming he wins out this season, next season we start from scratch, we do that season's winner, oh, and then maybe at the idea. very end... We'll do a season, like pitting the season winners against each other. Yeah. But this way, it's not like the King of Bohemia just marches straight through all the way to like the end of the series. It's We'll just do season by season. Right. It's kind of like how you can't compare every single person in like the Marvel oeuvre to Sedna, the goddess of sea and death, or no, nobody will seem as dateable. Except for Monica Rambeau. Except for Monica Rambeau. So, a few final thoughts, quick little notes that you had. Oh, that weird bit where Watson's like, oh, there's always been a bit of mild adultery between officers and their wives. <laughs> yeah. Holmes, suppose Mrs. Barclay had a lover and the colonel had found out. Major Murphy seems to have been rather close to her. You know, mild adultery has always been commonplace among officers and their wives serving in hot climates. Yeah, that was... I, I kind of laughed at that, too, of just, like, cool, Watson. Because <laughs> then Holmes is like... Thank you, Watson, for educating me in military morality. In the story, Holmes references uh, one of his Baker Street boys, and this is, so far, our first reference to the Baker Street Irregulars, which is basically a gang of street children and or general homeless people that Holmes will, like pay to keep an eye on people for him because nobody pays them any mind mm -hmm. so they can kind of come and go and like follow people or watch people or places without really like raising suspicion mm -hmm. and so we'll, we'll see more and more of them as we carry on which as a brief sidebar in dc's gotham by gaslight which is basically victorian batman the robins are functionally the baker street irregulars and it's a great writing choice oh man i forgot about the robins yeah there is a really good line in here where Henry Wood is talking about Nancy Barclay and he calls her the finest girl that ever had the breath of life between our lips. Gosh dang, I'm going to use that for seduction on all of my Upswipes profiles. It's really more intuitive. <laughs> I wrote this down that the scene where Holmes has figured out that there's a third person or was a third person and he basically is leading Watson to the same conclusion. Mm. Where he's like, well, if it was locked there, none of them have the key. And David Burke gives, like, he goes, Watson, if the key was not in the door, and neither Mrs. Barclay nor the Colonel had it, then 
then there must have been a third person. And I just wrote that quote down, and then right after it, Burke really going for that BAFTA, dot, dot, dot. Because it's just like, what is happening, David? <laughs> what are you doing? I actually have a, a read for that. Because Watson's supposed to be like, ah, I'm in my element here. He feels like he should be doing better than he is, but he's really not, because it's still a mystery. Watson isn't actually all that good at mysteries. Or he isn't like... Sherlock Holmes good at mysteries, so when he figures things out, he feels really excited about it. Hence the like the the bat. Oh yeah, yeah. I just love the way that he, the way he delivered that line was so like amateur high school theater that I just was cracking up. Ah, uh, that's fair. I have a note here. You know what's a good idea, Holmes? Announcing in a soldiers' club this disabled guy might be involved in the death of a respected military commander. Yep. A lot of people, like, uh, you know, like loudly announcing things in crowded rooms, like, hello, we are having a private conversation. Come over <laughs> here so that we are not overheard. I don't want everyone to hear that you were involved in the murder. This episode's a little messy sometimes. It's not, you know, maybe not bad, but a little bit messy. My last note I have written down here is near the beginning of the episode, I just wrote down Sherlock Holmes and the Adventure of Toxic Masculinity. God, right? Yeah, there's a lot of like this idea of like men controlling women that happens in this episode. And the idea that Barclay started out in the military as like an uncommissioned soldier and rose through the ranks to become a commissioned commander of that regiment, which apparently is like a very rare feat at the time. Mm. It is not generally known outside that Jim Barclay began his career as a private soldier in the Mallows. Did he indeed? From private soldier to commanding officer in the same regiment? That's a rare achievement. It was his gallantry in the Indian mutiny that got him his commission, and then quite rapid promotion over the years. And having to prove himself against all these people and all these backgrounds. It was basically just like the really shitty environment of like... The military? Uh, yeah, and like the class system and all of that. It, always having a chip on his shoulder. And like, and also, I mean, Henry Wood, like just in general, it was like, man, just if someone had given James Barclay a hug, this might have gone like <laughs> yes. a totally different way. Very much so. I think that's probably all we've got this episode. Yeah, there's nothing else that's worth bringing up. Uh, but uh, thanks for joining us. Um, our usual plugs apply here. And also, earlier I talked about the Goddess of Sea and Death, which if you're very confused by that, you should go look for OK Crusader. We've both been on it, and it's a podcast in which our friend Daniel tries to find love by hitting the, the random button on the Marvel wiki. And one of the top contenders was Sedna, the goddess of the sea and death. I will say, because I don't know what our audience demographic is, it gets very raunchy. Oh yeah, definitely. Very, very horribly, disturbingly raunchy. Yeah, this is a like podcast for adults, um, so don't tell your parents. If you're related to me, don't listen to that. So I think that's it for us. Next week, I ask Jackson to sleep tight as we read The Adventure of the Speckled Band. Jumping in quickly just to say that The Speckled Band does have references to gaslighting and domestic abuse. And if that is something that you don't want to deal with, then this is an episode of the Granada show and story that you might consider skipping. We're rare to meet thy go.